I make fast cars for very rich people. We're looking at things that will tell you if you are in danger from threats, missiles and that kind of stuff. I'm going to be joining Airbus Defence and Space as a robotic systems engineer. My role involves designing the electrical systems for large construction sites. I was doing it all uh, and I experienced it all. If you listen to those engineers and thought, I could do that, then you're in the right place. Welcome to I Could Do That, a podcast by Silver Fox and the IET, asking engineers what makes them tick. Hello and welcome to the I Could Do That podcast. I'm Alex. I'm the head of research and development at Silver Fox Limited. And alongside me, I have John Fox. Yeah, I'm John Fox. I'm Chief Technology Officer at Indra Renewable Technologies based in Malvern in the UK. So what do Indra Technologies do? So we develop uh, a range of uh, renewable technologies. Predominantly, um, we make and sell uh, a smart charger for electric vehicles. Um, So that allows you to save money on charging your car by charging it at cheaper times of the day. You might, for example, have a schedule that is charging the car on cheap electricity at night. But if your charger detects that your solar is going back to the grid and you might be getting maybe seven or eight pence a kilowatt hour for doing that, um, it will divert it into the car um, so that you get the best value for, for that energy. What about vehicle to grid? Is that something you guys do as well? Yeah, we're, we're, we're very active in vehicle to grid and uh, I call it bi-directional charging because we, we actually we did a, a trial uh, about four or five years ago, which was the biggest domestic vehicle to grid trial in, in the world um, with a few partners involved, including Nissan and Senex who are based at, at Loughborough. And we essentially, bi-directional charging is where you are using the car to, to put energy back. Um, so you're not just taking energy from the grid to charge it, you're taking energy from the car. And in that case, back to the grid to, to help when there's a high demand or, or kind of peak demand, maybe a shortage of generators available, some event that means that there's more value in the energy going back than going out and you get paid back for that. What we're actually trialing at the moment is something called V2H, Vehicle to Home. And that is a lot simpler, so you don't have to wait for people in the energy system to tell you that it's a valuable time to to give energy back. Um, Essentially, charge the car, as I said earlier, with a smart charger at the cheap times at night or with your solar. But when there's a high price of energy during the day, um, your car powers the house instead of the grid. So what the charger is trying to do is it's trying to make the demand from the grid zero. So if you switch the kettle on and it sees three kilowatts being imported from the grid, Within a split second, the charger matches that with energy from the car. And so the in-home display just says zero. So for all intents and purposes, it looks like the house is off grid because the car is now powering the house. A lot of people ask, how do you make sure that you don't end up with no charge to actually go somewhere? Uh, so it's, it's a common question. It's a reasonable one because it's a car. You bought it because it's a car, not because it's a home battery. And the, the, the short answer to that is you, you can set a minimum uh, level of charge. So my car cuts off at 10% anyway. That's to protect the battery. Um, but if I'm going somewhere, uh, you know, I can work out roughly how much of a battery I need. And I can say, right, don't discharge below 50% because I know I need to do a certain journey. I'm quite lucky. My commute's pretty consistent, you know, and I don't do too many journeys that aren't that commute, actually. So I'm fine with uh, as little as 20% I can do my journey with. So I'll let it charge right down to 20%. Is that car dependent or is that universal? A very good question. So at the moment, it's very car dependent, unfortunately. So there was a standard uh, developed by uh, Chadamo, um, which is Japanese and Japanese vehicles, predominantly Nissans, uh, have worked with bi-directional charging for 10 years, probably more. So I have a Nissan Leaf and I'm using one of our bi-directional chargers from the trial and it works absolutely flawlessly. It's brilliant. Unfortunately, 
there is a different standard for DC chargers uh, in Europe. It's known as CCS, uh, Command Charging Standard. And that means that not only will you not be able to jam that plug in because it's completely different, but the way that the communications work between the vehicle and the charger are completely different too. And that standard for communications only got signed uh, about a year ago, just under a year ago. So it's still quite early on in the development for European vehicles, but there's a lot of activity and a lot of interest. So I would say that in the next year, you should start to see a lot more vehicles start to be able to do this stuff. So we've got a project uh, going on at the moment with uh, Volkswagen and uh, Calusa and Ovo Energy to basically start talking to their cars to be able to do bi-directional charging for Volkswagen vehicles in the future. It's still early days, but a lot of interest, a lot of value to be had. So it's coming. It's just taking a bit longer than ideally it would have done. So we've talked a lot about your job, John, but what, in your opinion, is the most important personality trait for someone who is a chief technology officer? I think it's probably it's probably the same regardless of the industry. In my opinion, it's open-mindedness, but not too too open-minded. <laughs> so, uh, you know, classic meme of an engineer, you know, is that we will spend an infinite amount of time trying to solve a tiny problem um, just because we love problems. You can't get to that end of the spectrum, but you, you need to be open-minded to allow innovation to happen. So you need to provide space. You need to be open to alternative ways of doing things uh, than the norm or than you've got in your mind. You need to create um, a sort of self-confidence that allows you to be okay with not always having the answer yourself. For some people, that's natural. For other people, it, it takes time, uh, you know, and sometimes coaching, but you need to be able to create an environment where people don't feel vulnerable if they're going to put ideas out there because some ideas just won't work and might be a bit wacky some ideas might be the best thing that's that's ever come out of someone's mouth but if people are too scared because they might get laughed at or because they're going to get shut down because they're you know their boss or or their peers aren't open-minded then you kill innovation pretty quickly so you've got to have a fun open safe environment for people to put ideas on the table but not let it start to turn into a place where you know, all you do is come up with ideas and never actually complete anything. So having the ability to draw that line as well is pretty important. What would you say is the most difficult part of being a CTO? I would say being comfortable with ambiguity. You know, as engineers, we focus on removing ambiguity wherever possible. It's easy to procrastinate waiting for certainty on things as well. But um, it's kind of a, you know, an extension of what I was saying earlier. You know, you, you need to know when you've got enough information. You need to know when uh, something's fixed enough to move on with it and 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 pr- produce it, put something into service, develop a product. That that takes a lot of judgment. Um, it takes understanding what uh, customers, consumers of your product care about. It takes understanding what matters and what doesn't. Um, which you know, as an engineer by trade, sometimes you know we can get focused on problems and lose the uh, you know the relative importance a little bit so yeah i'd say the most difficult part is being comfortable with ambiguity but knowing when to when to draw a line on it and move forward is ambiguity always a good thing so my my background is engineering but in software as well where you have like minimum viable products and you have really clear set out this is what we consider to be an mvp almost no ambiguity you can't have ambiguity where safety is concerned that you know that's an absolute um so you know we're playing with high voltages um you know and if our products didn't work then it's not a joke um so there's certain areas where ambiguity is not is not acceptable and and safety is one of them but when it comes to how something's going to work and whether people are going to like working with it and enjoy uh you know using our app or enjoy interacting with our charges for example 
yeah, you mentioned minimal viable product. Yeah, absolutely. That's a great way to deal with ambiguity is get a very low fidelity, low effort prototype that might be a bit janky and fall over and stop working after a while, but get that into a, a trial group and see if people like it. Because you can spend an awful lot of time polishing something that people don't want. Um, and that, that is not a good business model <laughs> to spend a lot of time on something that people aren't going to buy. Um, so yeah, you, I can't speak enough about the need to validate that people are going to like what you're doing. Yeah, and when it comes to ambiguity, don't stop everything until you've you've ironed all ambiguity out. But um, really, it's about knowing when it's okay and when it's not. You know, if you're pretty close to launching a product, doesn't needs to be not too much ambiguity left by that point. But if you're early on in the the process of developing it, then ambiguity is opportunity. You know, it's a chance to change things. And so, yeah, there's probably a, a link back to where you are in the product development cycle as well. I'd say we've talked quite a lot about what's important to you in your job. Are there any tools that you use, things that you think are pretty indispensable? I'd say uh, it's maybe not a tool, but maybe a, a suite of, of things. I, I would say the ability to kind of manage change uh, and the various tools that come with that. Um, so understanding influence, people's motivations, people's fears, taking the time to do things right. Because naturally, whether it's a new product or it's a different way of working, in my role, I have to introduce a lot of change. And you know, I myself sometimes don't like change. I you know, understand people get comfortable. So really taking the time to do that properly. I mean, I used to work at a place called GE, General Electric. It's an American company and they, they had a whole kind of training regime about managing change. And it was really valuable training course, actually. I remember the first stage, which is so often forgotten, was uh, creating a shared need. So it was like, if people don't see that there's a need to change something before you start, then you're on to a loser. But it's amazing how often people don't take the time to do that. So whether it's showing statistics or whether it's demonstrating to people, you know, by letting them have a go at something and trying to do it and realizing it doesn't work, whatever it might be, the, the key key people that you need to influence and the key people affected by the change need to need to get that there's a need for the change in the first place. It's those kind of things that, you know, I don't know whether it's a, whether it's a toolkit um, as such, but those things are, are critically important. And that's kind of an extension of the wider kind of asking why about everything. You need to understand why you're doing things. In this case, creating a shared need is why are we changing things? <laughs> why why are we doing this? What do we need to achieve? You know, what's not working? I've seen far too many styles that either through maybe not understanding people as well, or or maybe lack of time, people don't do this as a leader and kind of you know, this is how it's got to be, or because I say or whatever, and it's not a very rewarding leadership style. And people don't learn from it either. They don't get to understand the logic and the decision-making process. So they don't develop themselves. It's interesting, actually, you saying that, me thinking about sales teams as well. It's not just engineering where you have to try and influence change. It's across the board. And being able to show that shared need is key to so many roles, well beyond just changing things for sure i think um you know I, I learned it in an engineering career but yeah it's absolutely applicable to, to any any situation and it's probably true in politics or you know town planning or anything really if people if people understand why you're changing something they're probably going to be a lot more open to the change mm. i think politics might be, <laughs> might be the exception at the moment yeah bad example <laughs> i'm sure in normal times even politics could probably learn something from the ge training manual what do you do when you're not working is it all electric car based still? 
No, actually. To be honest, I'd like to do more kind of conversions and playing around with stuff like that. But, you know, like a lot of people, the cost of doing it is actually really high. So batteries and uh, and motors and things at the moment are really expensive. I think that will change in the future when, you know, Teslas and things are reaching the end of their lives. But right now, it's, you know, it's really, really expensive to do. Um, so maybe in the future, I would answer that question with, I'm converting a car to you know, to be electric or something like that. But my two main hobbies are, um, I do a little bit of motorsport, uh, kind of amateur motorsport with a petrol vehicle, I should add. I'd love to do it with electric, but uh, motorsport's not quite there yet uh, at the amateur level. And predominantly, I do a lot of mountain biking. And I mean, the reason why, you know, those two hobbies, I think, are really are really good for me is because you can't look at your phone when you're driving a car or riding a bike. Uh, and it's so easy to get sucked into, you know, work stuff and you know, various social media and things these days, like headspace is really, really hard to come by. Um, and I'm, uh, you know, the worst example of someone that is glued to my phone far too often. But when you're doing those things, it's completely impossible. So it gives you a massive amount of freedom, being able to really focus on something and throw in a bit of adrenaline and, and risk. And uh, it's a good pair of hobbies to, to give me some genuine space. And it's amazing when you're riding a bike. I like the downs, right? Going downhill is the fun bit. Um, but actually, the climbs are re- really, really good headspace just to think about stuff, you know, in in a calm environment out in nature. You know, mountain biking tends to be a long way away from roads and stuff. So uh, two hobbies that I would I would really, really miss if I uh, for any reason couldn't do them anymore. Yeah, it's interesting. Someone asked me not that long ago why I play rugby. And it's exactly the same. You can't think about anything else. You don't have time. I can imagine if you tried to look at your phone on a rugby pitch, you'd, you'd end up kind of dump tackled pretty quickly. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. Just going back to motorsport, what kind of motorsport? Is it track racing? I started off using my everyday car because um, I really, really wanted to do motorsport my whole life. I always saw it as something that people with an awful lot of money did. And I uh, I won a competition in the motorsport news in 2008, basically be sort of given a car for a year. And uh, I got Nissan Micra to do a, a load of kind of auto tests and uh, auto solos. And they're kind of low speed round cones, um, but you know, it's what Colin McRae started out on. So a lot of driving skill involved, a lot of, uh, you know, the car's constantly sliding in that kind of motorsport. So actually you, you learn an awful lot about car control, but if it goes wrong, you're going to hit a cone rather than, uh, you know, an Armco or something. And I realized doing that for that year that, you know, this, this Nissan Micra I'd been given was basically a standard car. So back then, uh, it was like 2008, I uh, then used my Citroen Saxo and my Boy Racer machine and carried on doing it. Uh, now, I still do the auto solos because they're really cheap and fun and you totally can, as long as you've maybe got a spare pair of front wheels because they wear the tires out pretty quickly, you can totally use a daily vehicle for that. But uh, yeah, I do a little bit of rallying now with, a, I've got a, a Renault Clio that I use for that and a little bit of kind of sprints and hill climbs, which is like track racing, but um, you're the only vehicle on the track. So less chance to rub mirrors with other people and cause lots of damage. It's kind of progressed, you know, as, as I've got older and managed to get on the property ladder and things so i've had a little bit more disposable income but you know you can start when you can just afford a second set of wheels and tires for your for your daily driver yeah it's cool rally is a i feel like a step above track racing anyway it's so tough yeah i mean you've probably got visions of kind of you know going going through trees in what's called a stage rally you know i'm i'm doing something called targa rallies which is um it's still kind of on airfields predominantly uh it's very you know it's, it's quick in places um not quite the same as uh, you know gravel tires between trees at 120 miles an hour or anything but uh, yeah definitely a step up from from the auto test and also solo that's very cool this podcast is produced by the iet and silver fox Silver Fox proudly support engineers around the world with all their cable, wire and pipe labelling requirements. 
The Fox in a Box thermal printer has the ability to print a whole range of thermal labels with one software, one printer and one ribbon, saving loads of time for engineers out in the field. For more information, please contact Silver Fox.